Uh, we are continuing in our series of words on the church this morning. I want to, I haven't said this in a while, so I want to remind people, uh, if you're interested, there are flyers on the north side of the entryway that have an outline for the year of the words that we're covering in our sermons, uh, our Sunday morning sermons. And so we're going to continue about the church, talking about the church. Of course, we've talked about uh, the word church, and we've talked about fellowship, and we've talked about a variety of things. And today we're going to talk about worship. Worship, which is, you know, what we're doing now, or what we have come to do, it was an integral part of Christian practice from the very beginning of the church. This is something that was there in the beginning. Acts 2, 42-47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. We've talked about a number of those things, but not all of them yet. And awe came upon every soul. That word awe. Think about when the last time you felt awe. Now, there's a number of different ways we can think about this word. Uh, a feeling of reverence, perhaps, or a feeling of, of if you're encountering majesty and you just something just overwhelms you with, with a feeling of just wonder. Wonder would be another word that we could use. Awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together, and not all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And while we don't see the word, we're, we're going to talk about a particular word here. The word praise that's translated here is not the same as the word that is translated worship. But we see in these two components, awe and praise, we see what worship is. And as we think about this, this is again the very beginning. Peter has just had his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. He's, he's convicted them of their to be immersed in, into the forgiveness of sins and the, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what are they doing? Immediately thereafter, what are they doing? They're doing these things, including praising God, worshiping God. Our worship should contain an element of awe or reverence. This is inherent in the word that is translated worship as we direct, we direct our reverence or awe Toward God. That's what we're doing when we worship. And so we think about this word that is typically translated this. It literally means to show reverence or to pay homage, especially by bowing down or prostrating. Let angels prostrate fall. What does that mean? Well, that they're bowing down to pay homage to God. And as we consider worship this morning, I want to emphasize two things. As we think about, there's a number of different directions we can go with a worship sermon, a sermon on worship. We could talk about, of course, uh, sort of the elements of worship, what we're doing. Here, but I, I really want to hone in on a couple of things. Number one, what does God want out of our worship? And number two, the communal aspect of our worship. Again, we're doing this in a series on uh, words in the Bible about the church, about the congregation of the Lord. And so there's a, an important element of, of community and togetherness in our worship. Now, one of the best examples of worship is found in Revelation, Revelation 4, 9 through 11. And whenever the living creatures, this is of course a vision that John has shown, vision of the throne room. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him. This is that idea of prostrating, right? Falling down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying... Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. 
does your, and I've got in parentheses, our, you can think about this on both the individual and the communal level, right? There's two elements to that. You think about what's going on here. Does your slash our worship feel like this, look like this? The, I'm not suggesting you literally need to get, lie down on the ground. Some of us would have a hard time getting up if we did that. But I am suggesting that our worship should feel like that. That as we come, we are metaphorically, symbolically, in our heart and in our mind and in our soul, bowing down before God. We are prostrating, that's the word that's used a bunch in scripture, prostrating ourselves before him. This idea of casting their crowns, these elders, they have 24 crowns, right? What do they do? They cast their crowns, this idea they take it off and they throw it before the Lord. What does that mean? They're giving up their own will, their own desire, their own authority, their own sense of self. They're giving that up to God. I know I have this crown, but it is, it is inferior to you. And as we come before the Lord, what are we giving up? When we worship, our sense of pride, our sense of self-will, our sense of personal authority, our sense of what I want, that is not what worship is. Worship is about what God wants. And so we ask the question, what is in your mind and your heart when you worship? What are you thinking about? What, what attitudes do you have? What feelings do you have when you come before the throne of the Creator? What kind of worship does God want? Because, of course, worship is about his worthiness. Right? Isn't that what they're saying over and over? They say it over and over. Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things. So as we think about this idea of what does God want, because worship is about his worthiness, it should be about what he wants. Because it's not about me. John 4, 21 through 24. I think uh, Pat referenced this in his prayer this morning. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Uh, what is he saying there? So th there was this idea you had to come to Jerusalem to worship, right? You had to go to the temple. You had to go to that place. And of course, the Samaritans sometimes were not allowed in there, right? So they're on this mountain outside. They're, they're not in the temple, in the, in the place they should be. But Jesus says, that's, that's not how it's going to be. The hour is coming when you're not just going to come to Jerusalem and worship. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, implying what? There are some false worshipers, We'll worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Think about this idea. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. What does that mean? When you can seek the Father wherever you are. God is spirit. What does that mean? He's not, he doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a place. He's not located somewhere. Right? We think about the, we come and worship him here. We do that and that's great. But you don't have to be here to worship God. Where is God's spirit? Everywhere. He is omnipresent. He is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What does this mean? Well, a couple of things. Number one, what happens when we don't know who we are worshiping? What does he say? You worship what you do not, or you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Well, there is that idea that the 
sort of separated from the people of God. And of course, Peter says this later on. He's in Acts, Acts chapter 17. He looks around and he sees the idol to the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship is unknown. Him I proclaim to you. What does it mean to know God? To know the one you're worshiping. To be in that spiritual relationship with him. You might come, you might worship, you don't really know who you're worshiping, you don't know what it sa- the Bible says about him, you don't know who he is, you don't have a relationship with him, you just sort of show up and do this because maybe your parents are making you or maybe you just sort of maybe thought it was a good idea. I don't know, whatever reason you come. But if you don't know God, your worship is lacking. What happens when those without the Spirit worship God? Now, the word Spirit in a couple of ways. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Uh, There's an element to this that might be uh, with our hearts, right? We're thinking about what is in our hearts when we worship. Uh, Are we doing attitudes toward God? That's one element of this idea of spirit. But the other element is literally the Holy Spirit involved in our worship. Paul says in another, we worship by the Spirit. And what happens? You come before the Lord, you don't have his spirit within you, you don't have that relationship with him. What happens when you worship him? There is an element that is lacking here. But on the other hand, what happens when we forget to consider God's truth in our worship? Well, Jesus says as much. Mark 7, 6 through 8. He said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me in vain. That is, Their worship is not accomplishing anything. It is useless. In vain do they worship me. Teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now, the commandments of men don't just have to be about worship. We might apply this in a particular way in a sermon on worship about, okay, the particular elements of worship that God wants. We could look at 1 Corinthians 14, we will in just a minute, of the different things that God has said about how he wants worship. But the context here is not worship. The context is the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. And you're not doing that. You've made null the word of God, he says in another gospel. It's not just about the commandments about worship. It's about all of God's commandments, his truth. So when we think about God wants those to worship him in truth, it's not just worshiping him the way that he wants, but it is those who obey his commandments are the ones worshiping him. Those who understand his will. Those who are teaching others what he wants That is the person that God wants to worship him. The person who will accept his truth. Not just about how to worship, but any truth that he has presented. As we think about coming before him. God doesn't just want us to do the right thing, right? He wants us to have the right kind of heart here. The people honors me with their lips. That is, they're saying all the right stuff. But their heart is far from me. We could come. Maybe you're here today. I don't know. And you sang the songs. And you took the bread and the juice. And you bowed your head in the prayer. But maybe your heart is far from God. Maybe it's because you have sin in your life that you're refusing to repent of. That creates a barrier between you and him. Maybe it's because... You just don't really care generally about what he says. You're here because maybe you have to be here because it's a habit, the thing that you just do. But you're not really thinking about who you're worshiping. 
You're not really thinking about what you're doing. You're just sort of going through the motions. You can do the right stuff and worship God uselessly, vainly. So while we can and should worship individually as we transition to the second part here, I want to sort of change gears. We think about this individually, at home. You could be worshiping. You could do that, right? You could approach him, his throne. You could come before him in the spirit and in truth, doing what God wants. But this is something that was intended, as we see in Acts chapter 2, that we intended, was intended that we do as a congregation. What did he say in Acts chapter 2? Day by day, attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes. They were praising God. They were doing that together. And it's not a coincidence. And we read like verses like Colossians 3, verse 12. And you're thinking, well, I'm starting way back in Colossians 3. Because the, the verse about worship here, which we'll get to, is a result of a bunch of verses about fellowship. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And then we come into this idea of worship. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Our worship together. We came together today. You're here today. I'm glad you're here. We're worshiping together. But it is an outpouring of our communal fellowship with one another, isn't it? He says all this stuff about being kind and compassionate and forgiving and having love and being in harmony and having peace. All of these things that are prerequisites of communal worship. When we think about what God has done for us, we worship because we are God's chosen ones. That's what I'm thinking. How many times did he say be thankful, right? He said being thankful a couple of times. What am I being thankful for? I'm being thankful that God has chosen me. I'm being thankful that I'm part of God's chosen ones. I'm thankful for what God has done for me. That's what leads to my worship. And I also worship, my, this comes from this peace of Christ in my heart. I have peace with God. I have peace with you. And I come and I worship as part of the word of Christ dwelling in me. And what am I doing? I'm teaching and admonishing one another is what he said with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We think about our relational state with each other. Does how we affect each other, how we are relating to one another, does that affect how we worship our Heavenly Father? And the answer is absolutely. Because if I don't have the peace of Christ because I, I'm, I'm fighting with you and I don't like you and I'm arguing with you all the time and there's, there's a lot of strife and conflict and discord, I don't have the peace of Christ in my heart because I'm fighting with you. When I think about the things that he said about kindness and meekness, and bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, having love for one another, that is the thing that allows us to worship together, is the relationship we have with one another. When we worship, are we only affecting the one that we worship? Now, we are directing our awe and our reverence. I'm not, I don't have awe and reverence for you, right? That, or I'm not supposed to, let's put it that way. So we are directing our awe and our reverence towards our Heavenly Father, but at the same time, what does he say? We're teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So as I am directing my awe toward God, I am affecting you. 
you are affecting me. It is something that is happening together. And so as we think about this concept, how would this affect the way we worship, the content of our worship? There should be an element of unity in our worship, right? Of shared purpose in our worship. Which is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, we're not going to read all of 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to pick some verses out of this. Verses 6 and 7. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? He's not talking about how he's going to benefit God. How will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge of prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? Verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, the Corinthians really wanted spiritual gifts. They wanted them so bad. And what does Paul say? You're so eager for the Spirit, so do what? Strive to excel in building up the church. You want manifestations of the Spirit? Great. Strive to be good at building each other up. In our worship, we do this, don't we? Verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together? Each has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. But what's the point? Let all things be done for building up. This is not talking about general Christian practice. This is talking about corporate worship, right? Communal worship. And what's the point of our communal worship? Well, first of all, it is to give honor and reverence and glory to God. And second of all, it is to build one another up. Otherwise, you could just do that at home. You could do the first one at home, right? The giving honor and glory and reverence to God, you can do that whenever you want. You can do that in the shower. You can do that when you're going to bed. You can do that driving down the road. You can do that whenever you want. You can give glory and honor and reverence to God. But the building up of the church, that's what happens when we come together to worship. Why this is so important. So as we sort of conclude, we're wrapping it up, some practical considerations for our worship as we conclude. Number one, how did you prepare to worship this morning? Just think about it. Now, it really doesn't begin this morning. It really begins last night, doesn't it? Because if you stayed up till 1 a.m., you had to get up at 7, maybe you're a little groggy. Now, sometimes it happens you're sick and you don't sleep well and whatever, it happens. But, you know, you do have control over some of your sleep schedule, and if you're thinking about, I really want to be able to worship God, I really want to build up one another in worship, that be, really begins with, I'm going to get enough sleep so that I can have enough energy, so I can do that well, right? And, but I don't know if we think about that, right? What did you do to prepare for worship? Now, we can think about this morning, okay? You got up this morning, you had breakfast, you're doing stuff with the kids maybe. If you don't have kids, what are you, what are you doing in the morning? How are you preparing mentally, physically, spiritually, because what you're coming to do, Stan, uh, my father, late father-in-law, used to say this all the time. Well, he didn't say it. He had this Facebook post that he did every Sunday morning. You will do nothing more important today than worship God. You will do nothing more important today than worship God. Because it is of such importance, maybe it warrants some preparation. Right? You're thinking about in the morning, you're trying to, as Matt said, he was talking about communion, but in a more general sense... Put away the thoughts of this world. That's a phrase that is often said at the Lord's Supper. But putting away the thoughts of this world is something that would be equally relevant to singing or praying, right? Especially as you learn the songs. Now, if you don't know the songs and you're looking up there and you have to really read the words because you don't know the song, you're really focused on the song. But if you've memorized all the songs, well, your mouth can start doing that without your brain, 
right? Your brain doesn't really need to be involved. And so as we begin to think about this idea of mental preparation, spiritual preparation, physical preparation as we come to worship, did you consider how you could impact others today? When you were coming to worship, were you thinking about how am I going to affect the people sitting around me? How am I going to affect the other people in the building as I walk in, as I am interacting with them before worship? You know, you can really throw somebody out of worship beforehand, in between Bible class and worship. You say something a little unkind, or you say something a little short, or you say something thoughtlessly, and you know, it really, you can send people spiraling, right? Can't you? Into, why did they say this? How did they, and before you know it, now that person's not worshiping. They're not worshiping because you were thoughtless in your words before worship. You affected them. You threw them out of it. Being more thoughtful in how I am affecting you in my worship. As I'm singing, as I'm praying, whatever it is. Did you think about that at all? Or were you just sort of, I'll show up and we'll see how it goes. Did you treat, how did you treat God the previous six days? Monday through Saturday. Does it even matter? When God says of the people... In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. Well, that's one thing about false teaching, but I would also suggest that if you didn't care at all about what God wants, or if you didn't treat God well throughout the rest of the week, to come on Sunday morning and be like, oh yeah, things are great, God, I love you so much, but you know what, I don't really care about you for Monday through Saturday. You are worshiping him in vain. He knows, he's not dumb. You're not tricking God. He knows that if you come here and you act really holy and act reverential and then the rest of the week don't act a, a, a don't seem to care about him whatsoever, he knows you don't really care. Your worship is useless if you are not also thinking about him deeply through the rest of the week. Have you thought about how to get better at worshiping? Is it a skill? I think it is a skill. Now we can think about, well, definitely singing is a skill. That's a skill that you could improve upon. Have you ever thought about that? If we want to give God our best, well, part of that might be I'm, I'm going to develop some of my abilities. I'm going to develop my ability maybe to sing or to read music or to, uh, we can think about even prayer, right? Some people you can even, I think, tell as uh, certain men grow in prayer. I, I really am encouraged as people grow in that ability, right? Or just the idea of focusing. Focusing is a skill. It is. The ability to focus on one thing for a prolonged period of time. Have you ever thought about this? You could practice that. You come to worship. We're here for an hour. I know it's a little over time. You're here for an hour. If you don't ever focus on anything for that length of time, it might be tough for you to do that now, here for an hour, focusing on God. But that is something you could practice and get better at through the week. The ability to focus on one thing. We think about what would a visitor think about your worship today? We have some visitors I appreciate you being here. I hope our worship has been encouraging to you. I hope as you've looked around, you've seen people who are invested in what is going on. You see people who are thoughtful about what is happening. You see people who are passionate about the God that we worship. And if you have not seen that, I'm, I'm deeply sorry. Because God deserves better and we deserve better, right? A visitor, you think about, what would a visitor think of our worship? I hope that they have seen things that are holy. Finally, we ask the question, what does God deserve 
from us in worship. Now, we can think about the typical things. He deserves our whole focus. Duh. He deserves our energy. Yes. He deserves the best of our praise. Yes. He deserves... The answer is very simply what? Everything. He deserves everything that we can give him in worship. And so we'll end with Hebrews 12, 22 through 24 and 28 and 29, the reading that was read at the beginning. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living angels, uh, of the living God rather, to heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled, enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks to a better word than the blood of Abel. Description of the church, the kingdom of God. This is what we've come to. This awesome thing that God has built for us, the church. And therefore what? Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus offer to God acceptable worship. Worship that is, yes, in the way that he wants, the th doing the things that he has said, but worship that is acceptable because it is given with our whole heart, because we have his spirit within us, because we've submitted to his will, because we've become a part of his church. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. Today you worshiped, hopefully, the God who is a consuming fire. The God who is both creator and judge. The God who is the giver of all good spiritual gifts. The God who sent his son to die for you. And I hope that as you came this morning, your worship was acceptable. Our worship was acceptable because of the thing that we have been given, his church. And if it wasn't, we can make it better, can't we? We can do better in the future than we have in the past. As we think about the invitation, we offer the invitation to become part of this kingdom. The thing that God has given us, the kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's what we're offering, right? To be a part of that kingdom. That's what we're inviting you to become a part of. We know how to do that, right? To repent of our sin, to confess Jesus before others, to be immersed into Christ, to try to live better. We can do that. Today, there's water right there. Come while we stand and sing.